Hello, how are you all? Love this is Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people past and present black and white who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. And good evening. You have are now listening to the January 29th edition of the Gist of Freedom, and I'm your host for the evening, Shelley Gaines. And tonight we have a very special guest, Nicole Salter. She's a dramatist and actress and has several plays currently um, in process. So we want to talk to her tonight and find out about her plays and um, where they're located and just to find out what she has um, in the works for 2015. Nicole, are you on the phone? Yes. Hi. How are you? Hi. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Great. Okay, um, so I went to your website and did a little research, and you are a very busy lady. <laughs> very busy. <laughs> I try. <laughs> okay, so um, I want this to be um, a forum for you to discuss, you know, whatever you like to discuss. And I wanted to first start off, um, and hopefully this is the direction you want to go into, and if not, just, you know, veer me in that area you would like to talk about. But your 2014 2015, The Season of Salter, where you negotiated four premiere productions of your works. That's pretty incredible. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I definitely believe in uh, celebrating one's achievements. The goal of mine was not necessarily to have four in one year, but to definitely get all of those works a production. So I was really proud of myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as you as you should be. Now, um, <laughs> definitely, I was read. I was like, this woman is so accomplished. But um, okay, so the the what I have here is I have um, the first one is li- first production is lines in the lust. Lines then, in the dust. Oh, lines in the dust. Okay, <laughs> that would be another play. Lines in the dust. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Interesting, but Nicole. very very. Different. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I I know I got the other ones right. Carnival, Freedom Riders, and Repairing a Nation. That is correct. That, that is, is correct. correct. Okay, wonderful. Okay, do you want to go into a little bit about each production? Sure. Um, okay. I'll just go in order. Um, Lines in the Dust is a play that was commissioned by Luna Stage in West Orange, New Jersey. It's a play that they wanted me to write because a man named Judge Robert Carter, who was actually a, a federal judge in New York, but was from the Essex County or raised in the Essex County area. And his claim to fame, or I should say his claim to fame, I'm sure the man was quite accomplished. But one of the things that people primarily remember him for is being one of the legal architects that built the strategy that led to the decision in Brown versus Board of Education. And so here's a man who fought most of his life to uh, 
find equality in our society through the institution of education. And I uh, was offered um, his legacy as the basis upon which to to create a play. And so I started by asking myself, what? What did he? I wonder. He died in 2011, I believe. And I just mm-hmm. wondered what he thought about the state of education, given the struggle that he had. I mean, when you read his biography, the one point that really resonated with me as, as like a big wow moment was he said after the the decision was made in 1954, he was worried about his career as a civil rights attorney because he mm-hmm. thought that civil rights law was going to be defunct and he didn't know what he was going to do. <laughs> Oh, wow. And I said, okay. wow, here you are in 1955, 56, worried about your career in civil rights as though as though everything had been remedied. Um, mm-hmm. And so I created a play that answered the question or explored the question, why are we still, why are schools still segregated? Which, of course, leads to a broader question of why our communities are segregated, because that's the answer to that, right? Our schools are segregated because you have to go to your home school and our communities are segregated. So why are our communities still segregated? Mm-hmm. And it follows the story of a woman who commits school residency fraud. And that is, she um, places her daughter in a school outside of her home district in efforts mm-hmm. to get her a better education mm-hmm. and gets caught. And yeah. all of the mayhem that ensues. Right. So um, that's that one. Okay. And Ball is my, mm-hmm. I think it's the favorite, my favorite play that I've ever written. It's incredibly lewd oh. and graphic and and bad. It's bad, bad, bad oh. in that way. Lots of, it's about, um, it's a play that explores what I call the new American dream. I think in my mom's generation, my grandmother's generation, the dream was really stability, right? Being able mm-hmm. to, to have access to quality employment that allows for you to have a comfortable standard of living. That was essentially mm-hmm. the American dream. Whereas I feel like in my generation and subsequent generations, the American dream is is quite different. Um, <laughs> the American dream is to be rich and famous, and it yeah. kind of doesn't matter what for. The dream is not to be accomplished or to be useful. It's mm-hmm. just to be known and dominating something. You've got to dominate something in order to feel like you're the quote-unquote man. So I use the play Carnival to explore the theme of, of American machismo um, and these three guys who go to Brazil for a week mm-hmm. of carnal pleasure, um, mm-hmm. only to be faced with some um, chinks in their in their idea of what this fantasy should be, this fantasy right. of being the man should be, and they end up... Um, kind of destroying their 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 relationship with each other, their brotherhood with each other in efforts to maintain this machismo that they each right. have. Very um, interesting. So that sounds that like a one. good one. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that one it's it's one of my favorites because uh, just a little bit more about it because it um you know when I first had the idea to write about it it was really just about you know exposure to expose this horrible act that these horrible men were doing to to this nation who was pimping its own women, you know, mm-hmm. that one of the chief attractions of their tourist industry are these women mm-hmm. who are black right. women and, and these black men who either through, either through inheritance or through their own experience should understand the mm-hmm. impact of exploitation on a population. Like they should know what that is and not want to participate mm-hmm. in it. But yet mm-hmm. they find a way to compartmentalize it in efforts to have this dream. 
yep. even if they have to pay for it. And when I thought about it like that, I said, well, gosh, you know, I have a dream, too. It's not the same. My dream is not to have sex with lots of random people in a foreign country. Right. Uh, but I do have a, a a dream about what it is to be on top, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I often say that. You know that show that Tyra Banks had. You know, uh, Top Model. Yeah. And the mm-hmm. themes. The theme song is like, "You want to be on top, top, top." Mm-hmm. And I'm like, "Yes, yes, of course I do. <laughs> Everyone does. Like that's what we're all striving for—to be on top of something. Mm-hmm. And if you're, if you have a life where you're not dominating something, either through prestige, which is you know, right. through through merit, or through mm-hmm. just Ganking it, just straight jacking something from it. Yeah. Well, you know, I think you're on your way, Nicole. I I, I really, you're on your way, honey. I mean, you got, you're very accomplished. I mean, come on. Well, I, I try. You know, I think, I think that I attach myself to that place so much is because I identify with that struggle so much. Because intellectually, Mm -hmm. I know that that's absolute poppycock. Um, yeah. And that and that what matters in life has nothing to do with that. And I've been raised that way. And I believe okay. our culture, our American isms, profess mm-hmm. that. They say the words in that way. They say freedom and justice for all. They say you know like et cetera, et cetera. But mm-hmm. what we say and what we see, mm-hmm. you know, are two different things. And it's just my mother mm-hmm. remind me reminds me you know when you're raising a child. I don't have any children. She said when you're raising a child, mm-hmm. make mm-hmm. sure it's not what you say. They will do what you do. They yeah. will come to understand the world based on what on what you do and what they see actually happen, not what they hear is supposed to happen. And I feel like so much of our world affirms that which we say we are not. We say we're not materialistic. We're the salt of the earth. You're like you're kidding me, right? <laughs> <laughs> People have homes with with items that they can't even find. They have so yeah. much stuff. You know what I mean? Right. Like, so. I, uh, mm-hmm. The the hypocrisy or the dichotomy of our value system and how it has eroded and and what what it places where it places this generation of people as they try to make their way. I think most I won't say most let's say quite a few people in our generation are able to articulate these issues, but they still find themselves enraptured in them. Like I understand how this all works, but at the end of the day, I got to get paid, or I have to take this opportunity to to be on top. So right. It's something that I struggle with, so I, I definitely identify with that play very, very much. Okay. Uh, Freedom Riders is an interesting piece that is not my solo piece. It is um, it was a commission by the University of uh, Missouri at Kansas City, and it's me and three other writers, or four of us, mm-hmm. who are each charged with the task of creating a character that we would follow from um, kind of the idea to the to the end result of their freedom ride. And it was a way, of course, to honor the actual freedom rides, but to mm-hmm. delve a little bit into the, the the different regionalisms because I think people, you know, as the, as the years pass and the story unfolds as it does, it kind of gets truncated. And one of the things I'm interested in is that there were people much later in the rides, but people from the West Coast, I'm from Los Angeles, Okay. People from the West Coast that actually participated, and mm-hmm. you never hear about them. Um, right. So my character comes from Compton, which mm-hmm. is uh, which I get a hoot out of because Compton was very much a middle class suburban, almost farm town mm-hmm. in the nineteen early nineteen sixties, okay. and was just becoming integrated um, with black people. 
So my character okay. is this white woman who is from Compton, and you know, we know what Compton's known for now. But I just right. wanted to remind people that there were farms, and still are. There is a farm in Compton, California, mm-hmm. and people mm-hmm. ride horses through the streets. So mm-hmm. this image that we have of what it is wasn't always what it was. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And and it's the story of how uh, she she's in love with a with a man um, with a student. She's a young woman in college. She's in love with a black boy. As much as she could be in love with him, I mean, it's not like they dated or anything, but she was, right. she wanted to get to know him mm-hmm. and felt like she couldn't because of society. So in efforts to get closer to him, she takes on this, this cause and uh, gets called out by him because he says, you know, this is like a game for you. You get to go home and have a regular life. Like, you, like I don't get to go home when I do this. Like, right this doesn't turn off for me. And she takes that as a challenge, like, well, you know, I'm I'm truly down. I mm-hmm. am down, and I'll show you. And she signs mm-hmm. up for the Freedom Rides. To his dismay, she, he thinks he's absolutely insane. And he's like, I ain't going south. Of, I'm not going south of, you know, Wilshire Boulevard. And, right. You know, right. <laughs> much, less, much less, you know, the deep south. And right. um, she said, well, you're, you, well, then who's the coward now? And so she goes. And uh-huh. so she's this very naive kind of woman. She really has no idea mm-hmm. what the fight is about or what she's getting right. into. And over the course of the play, we see her come to understand what that is and make some serious choices about how she wants to participate. Okay. Um, so that's that one. Mm-hmm. And, and um, Preparing a Nation. Mm-hmm. Preparing a Nation is about a, a woman who who discovers that um, there's a class action suit for reparations against the state of Oklahoma Mm -hmm. for the people who were involved in the Tulsa race riots. Mm -hmm. And she knows that her family, you know, through uh, the family legacies, the stories that the family has told that they were in fact uh, victims of that Mm -hmm. hard racial event Mm -hmm. and that she has now a chance to get some recompense for the family and really kind of for herself. So it's, it's also a bit selfish because she's down and out in her life um, and she sees this not only as an opportunity, not just as an opportunity to mm-hmm. uh, resolve a, a larger family societal issue, she sees it also as a, a little way for her to get some financial relief. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but she needs everyone in the family to, to, to have a buy-in. Um, okay. And she, to her dismay, finds some people in her family who are not so interested in that pursuit. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the drama starts with her insisting and negotiating and manipulating her way into the minds and hearts of her other family members what? to try to get them to sign on. And right. as she does, um, some of her their own personal family history is unearthed in her search Oh, okay. And she realizes that um, there has, there has, yes, there has been this greater, um, you know, social societal wrong that is the Tulsa race riot of 1921, mm-hmm. but there mm-hmm. was also an injury within her own family that has that she has inherited the wounds of, and mm-hmm. wants reparation for that as well. Oh, okay. Wow. Now. Let's see. Now, that play is playing at the Crossroads Theater, correct, in New Brunswick, New Jersey? That is correct, yes. Okay. And when does that – is it playing now or is it playing in February? It starts in February. It opens 
it opens February 26th and it runs through March 8th. So it's a real quick okay. um, mm-hmm. run. It's only two weeks, but it'll be exciting. Okay. Okay. Great. Um, are you going to be there opening night or? Oh, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> definitely your opening night. Okay. Well, I know we have callers who are already on the line and are anxious to ask questions. So sure. being that we've got through the fir- the first season of Salter, maybe, you know, people have <laughs> questions <laughs> and you can entertain them. So let's see. Do we have any callers on the line? Hello. Hello, hello. Okay, I just was informed by my producer we're having technical technical difficulties with our callers, so we'll just continue on, Nicole. How is that? That's great. Okay, great. Okay, so it's funny um, with, okay, now are all these plays going on simultaneously? Are you starting off with the uh, Repairing the Nation at Crossroads and then going to the next, to some of the other ones, or how was no, it? No, two of them have occurred already. Um, Love okay. Us opened the season at Luna Stage. It played October 9th through November 9th okay. of last year. Okay. And Carnival was at the National Black Theater in Harlem, and it played from October 21st to November 16th of last year. So this is actually the okay. third installation, Repairing a Nation. Okay. Uh-huh. We play, uh, like I said, uh, February 26th through March 8th, and then mm-hmm. uh, Freedom Riders plays, it opens, I think, uh, May 1st, but May Freedom 1st. Riders is in Kansas City, so oh, okay. if you have any listeners in Kansas City. <laughs> okay. Okay, this is blog talk, so you'll never know, you never know, they might, they might be out there. You um, never know. Exactly. Now, okay, so what, what I did was, um, I actually, I have family that lives in Oklahoma, so really? when you, yeah, so when you, uh, uh, when I was researching this, I was like, oh, my God, this is like, um, this it, it kind of hit home a little, close to home for me in, in a way. Okay. And, um, you know, I don't know if people know about it, especially a lot of uh, Northeasterners. They don't realize that because when I tell people I have black relatives in uh, Oklahoma, they look at me like I have five heads. But, but, but I know it's surprising, but they do. But, um, but anyways, but back in 1921, I was reading, they called that the Black Wall Street, where that race riot occurred. There was a town in Tulsa. Well, Tulsa, mm -hmm. like most American cities, was deeply divided by segregation. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a town literally on the other side of the tracks. Um, that was, I guess, technically Tulsa proper, but the community of Greenwood. And mm-hmm. this is a community that black people were forced to live in because they couldn't live anywhere else. They were forced mm-hmm. to shop in because they couldn't shop anywhere else. Mm-hmm. They were forced to entertain themselves in because they couldn't go anywhere else and be entertained, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so what this forced segregation did was actually keep money within their community. And then if you couple that with forced segregation, so one of the interesting things I think that integration did was kind of dismantle our communities because it it it, um, it opened up uh, the possibility for class division during segregation right. in our in our in our communities there was no mm-hmm. class division no matter how educated you were, what kind of job you had, you had to live Mm -hmm. in this community. And so you found an incredible amount of enterprising black people who were living in this community um, who, through their entrepreneurial endeavors, brought services and goods to the community that Mm -hmm. were stellar. 
and yes. first rate. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So there were doctors and attorneys, uh, different kinds of attorneys. There were several schools from primary all the way up to um, high school. Mm-hmm. They had movie theaters. They had hotels and bars and restaurants and, you know, you name it, they had it. They were very self-contained. And the prosperity of their existence began to uh, cause jealousy between them and the white community, particularly after the war, when a lot mm-hmm. of the men came home with no jobs mm-hmm. um, but guns. <laughs> right, right. They came home with guns but no jobs. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a, a broad resentment about the even the menial work that blacks were doing in white communities. There was a resentment for them being there, like these jobs can go to, you know, better people, um, mm-hmm. they they shouldn't be here. So mm-hmm. there was already that tension mounting. Uh, mm-hmm. And then this is also the environment. And what you're talking, you know, I think Oklahoma was settled by presidential decree. The president literally said, you know, basically go out west and whatever you can claim you can have. Right. So that's where we get the, the concept of the wild, wild west from. Like you're mm-hmm. talking about some people who are ready to go and stake their claim and, and have to fight for it. Um, right. Because there was, there was a bit of lawlessness. There was nothing out mm-hmm. there to create any kind of order, and there was certainly not much enforcing of the law. So this mm-hmm. is also a time and a culture where people, um, where, the, where mob rule was the rule. Uh, where people would drag people from the courthouses, and not just black people, people mm-hmm. that they, as as the mob, deemed guilty, whether they had trial or not, they would hang them and dismember them and do all kinds of crazy. There was just it was just very difficult to maintain this mob law. It was difficult, quite frankly, also for the law enforcement, even though they were often um, precipitators of this mob right. activity. Right. And so one day. Um, a black, it said, I mean, who we don't really know. There are really only two people who know, the black man and the white woman who mm-hmm. engaged each other. But in order to use the restroom on the white side of town, there was only one restroom that the blacks could use, and it was like in the city hall or something like that. It was in a building, not the city hall. It was in a building. So mm-hmm. they, uh, he had to go to that building. And at the time, there also wasn't much, much that a woman could do outside of the home for work. Right. One of the few things that she could do actually was uh, um, become an elevator operator. Okay. So he goes into the building to use the bathroom, and the elevator operator is called, and she buzzes down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are different reports from, from this point on as to what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But at the end of the day, she definitely screamed, and someone heard mm-hmm. her scream, and mm-hmm. and the young man took off running, and he ran all the way to Greenwood. Mm. Um, that night, of course, um, the the leadership of Greenwood understood the severity of, of the, the allegations, mm-hmm. and people came for him. Mm-hmm. And they, they were, like I said, they were attorneys. Some of them were also well, uh, veterans. They had weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, and when the police came to retrieve the young man, mm-hmm. they made it very clear that they had no intention of obstructing justice. But they, they had every intention of making sure that justice was by the book. Right. So you, you, this boy is going with you, and you will lock him up in the in the holding, and he will have his arraignment, and he will have he will we will go through the entire process. But mm-hmm. what we will not have is him being dragged from the courtroom by a mob and hung on the streets. Okay. And so um, they let him go, and the crowd mounted around 
but began to build around City mm. Hall. And the the police sheriff, quite frankly, it seems from a couple of reports that I read, also seemed mm-hmm. as though he he I mean he had a stake in this too because he wants yeah. to be able to show the governor and the and the federal and the federal government that he mm-hmm. could, that he could run his town that mm-hmm. he could enforce the law in his town like so he can't okay. keep having reports of lawlessness because then it makes right. it look like he can't do his job so right. you know um, he was trying to quell and disperse the um, the crowd but of course they weren't going and they kept growing and growing so finally the men of Greenwood. Um, formed a little militia of their own, and they marched themselves back up to City Hall to offer their services to guard the, the you know, the entrances and exits or whatever. And the mm-hmm. sheriff, of course, was appalled by that. He's like, no, go home. I got it. I got it. I can handle it. And they're like, well, it doesn't look like you can handle it. And he's like, don't worry. I got it. So they left, and then came back again because the crowd never left and kept growing. And they really came back because in those days they had published, they published the paper like twice a day. Mm -hmm. So in the evening report, um, the cover page said, you know, there's going to be a hanging tonight or something like that. Oh, wow. Okay. So they mount themselves back up, and they go back up there, and they say that we're not leaving. Well, this time when they go to leave, I mean, there are several reports of different things that happened um, Mm -hmm. I'll tell you the one I like the best. <laughs> mm-hmm. They say they say that um, a man approached a white man approached a black man as they were coming down the steps of City Hall, mm-hmm. saying, "You know, hey nigger, where did you get that gun?" Mm-hmm. And he said, "You know, I fought in the in the war just like just like every other man. This weapon is mine, mm-hmm. and I'll mm-hmm. use it if I have to." Mm-hmm. And the white man says, "Oh, really?" And he goes to grab his weapon from him. And Mm -hmm. shots are fired, and that's when the riot breaks out. Now, Mm. interestingly enough, when the riot breaks out, nobody goes for the boy in this in the jail. Right. Nobody goes for the boy in the jail. They go. They go to attack the community of Greenwood to to burn the town down. Yeah. To burn it down, and unfortunately, Mm -hmm. the sheriff, um, in all of his wisdom, deputized a lot of the men. Uh, white men with weapons mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and it forced even like the ammunition stores and the gun shops to open to arm the men that were not armed because he felt wow. like the mob was out of hand and these men would help. But of course mm. those men were the mob. Right. You know, right. meanwhile exactly. they go to Greenwood, people who haven't already been beaten or maimed or raped or whatever mm-hmm. are rounded up, um, put unquote for their protection or flat out arrested while the people continue to pillage and burn down their entire community. Right. And I like heard they got bombed, too. I heard they used a bomb. Well, did, you, did you read that also? Or? There is. I mean, uh, no one wants to believe that, but America has bombed mm-hmm. its people twice, to my knowledge. Right. Once was in the Tulsa race riots, where they mm-hmm. uh, planes bombed the community of Greenwood. And mm-hmm. also what was sad is that when the governor finally called in, I guess the state troopers or whatever they're called, Mm-hmm. They also they they took so long to come, and when they came, they actually participated in the mob activity. Um, yeah. They didn't help the black people, right. um, so they they really when I say ran through the community like like blocks, it, it was so bad that when the people tried to claim um, their property, like I own mm-hmm. a house on such and such mm-hmm. street, mm-hmm. to keep them 
they, they, they tried to reclaim their community as a part of the white community. So when mm-hmm. they went to make these claims at City Hall or, or when they meant to make insurance claims, mm-hmm. they'd say, you say, oh, my house was on Floyd and Arlington, you know, and they'd be like, there is no Floyd and Arlington. Mm-hmm. Like they, Unbelievable. Because nothing exists there anymore. They literally wow. just say that that street's not there. Mm-hmm. And you know therefore had nothing. That is, so, that, that's a... That's a really that's that's that place sounds so interesting. It really, really does. And we have um, I think we have a I think we have a caller on the line. We're going to try again. Um, caller seven three two. Hello. Hello. Yes. Hi. How are Hi. you? Welcome. Hi. Welcome. Welcome, Miss Salter. I I really really appreciate the, the work that you've done. Uh, it seems as if things are really really working out so well, and you're you're headed for a very bright future. I, Thank I have you very one, much. Yeah, I have one single question. Um, what is the message of repairing a nation? Does it? Does it? Uh, the message of repairing a nation. What my intentions was to really um, not advocate for or against reparations per se. One of the reasons I wrote the place because I wanted to have a conversation, a deeper conversation about the about what reparations were, not just um, monetary compensation for property loss. I think in America we tend to value property rights over human rights all the time. I want to talk about the the wounds that are uh, incurred when uh, a riot or when injury to our humanity has been done and what happens when there is no uh, healing of that throughout generations. And the complexity of what it, of what reparations on a on a more um, spiritual level, if you will, what why it's so difficult, why why there's conflict around it, why is it not just obvious that something needs to occur? And so I wanted to talk about the nature of apology, like what is an apology, what can be apologized for, are there crimes that can apology would suffice for, um, what else should be a part of an apology. Um, what can be given to you when when your humanity is taken from you? Um, I think it's interesting because the Tulsa race riot, the actual class action suit did occur and was being spearheaded mm-hmm. by Charles Ogletree and um, Johnny Cochran. And one of the that was the only way the only way that they can get recognition for the atrocity that occurred was mm-hmm. to say that they had lost valuable property. Mm-hmm. It, like so, here we are in a nation that prides itself in its moral superiority, which can't admit, but that will only acknowledge when you've lost property. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to to talk about that, but I also wanted to talk about it in a way where um, that it wasn't polarizing, because I think the topic of reparations themselves, uh, whenever I tried to bring it up, it would it's just a very polarizing thing. People have their positions, they're staunch about them, they don't move and they don't listen. I wanted mm-hmm. to show how how complicated it is to be the inheritor of a benefit mm-hmm. that was caused by a tragic by a tragic wrong. How well, do you, you mm-hmm. how do you uh, reconcile that? How okay. do you justify that? What do you do with that? Um, what why our human propensity is not to give up the things that that um, that give us advantage, or why uh, our our sense of ego, our sense of um, our self-image and sense of 
self-pride or family pride won't allow us to acknowledge the places where our family has messed up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I use the the metaphor of the family, of the actual family, to talk about our, our broader American family, since we are a family as dysfunctional as that may be. And so that okay. that was my point. Okay. Well, thank you, caller. We have another question and another caller on the line. Caller number 309, um, you're on. What is your question, please? Hello? Hello, the next caller, please. Hello? Um, yes, hello? 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 Okay. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I enjoyed the show, and I wanted to ask, you know, when you were doing your research for it, and were, were there other ones as far as, like, the, the research for the, the Black Wall Street play? Mm-hmm. Did you do research as far as like the whole area of, of uh, Oklahoma? Because from what I understand, there was a lot more cities. You know, maybe not as prosperous, but there seemed to be a, a big rush of people that came there at that time. So, you know, in your research outside, of yeah, um, absolutely. There, I mean, there was a, a point in time where there was some um, research that I did where some African Americans were holding to um, propose that Oklahoma be an all-black state. That's how many black people were fleeing the South um, for um, a sense of, a, you know, a new life or a new frontier. There are, of course, tons of race riots. I mean, in our contemporary culture, when we think riot, we think um, we think poor people, disenfranchised people, tearing other people's stuff down. Whereas up until I would say the the 60s, before the 60s, the a race riot was a bunch of white people running through your neighborhood killing you, um, mm. and that and that occurred all the time. I think it was devastating because Greenwood was such a beacon of um, it provided evidence that prosperity was possible in the society for black people. But I mean that's what Rosewood is about. I mean, there were tons. There were tons of places that were run through, and not just mm-hmm. for black people. I just did some research about a riot that happened in an early Chinatown in like 1877, where these white mm. men were upset that Chinese men had jobs, <laughs> so they just mm. ran through and destroyed their entire community. Wow. Um, so up until, like I said, the 60s, that's that's what a riot was. That's what you were afraid of. It wasn't you um, disenfranchised you know, and, and angry. It mm-hmm. was them jealous and angry and superior mm-hmm. coming to attack mm-hmm. you. That sure does not leave you a sense of security, right? I mean, you think about that. <laughs> that is a no. very precarious situation to be in. And I there's no you. recourse. I mean, one of the other interesting facts that I found in my research was how um, – the the governor of Oklahoma, as well as the, the the sheriff or whoever was head of the police force at the time, were embarrassed by the by the race riot because all of the newspapers on like the East Coast, especially uh, especially in the North, mm-hmm. you know, had had stories in them that said, "For shame, Oklahoma, that that you guys did this, and mm-hmm. it's lawless there, and no one should go there." Like, mm-hmm. ugh. Like, if this is what ha- the kinds of things that happened there. So the governor was scared because he was like, oh, God, now no one's going to come here. No one's going right. to settle here. No one's going to come. And mm-hmm. so they issued a, re- uh, a response that said, you know, we gave 
you know, we acknowledge that that was horrible and we gave them lots of stuff back and it's going to be all good. Meanwhile, um, to dis- to make it so that it was that no one could ever that to make it seem as though um, no one could ever pinpoint or accuse mm-hmm. the white community of mm-hmm. precipitating this event mm-hmm. from the from the archives much later, not during 1921, much much later, from the library archives, somebody ripped the first the front pages mm-hmm. off of the newspapers from that day and the, and oh. the days after. Oh wow! They oh, ripped them out. Oh my god! Wow. Well, see, and, so, but you know what? Here, you but the, but the story still lives, right? So the, even though the story they tried to live, but yeah. That, but that to me is crazy. So you have no. It's like the reason that we have evidence is because of 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 the other of the way that people responded in other newspapers and personal affects and letters mm-hmm. and stuff. But okay. the official. Um, the official documents from their their mm-hmm. media were destroyed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we have another caller. Caller 202, are you there? Hello? Hello? <laughs> Hello? Next caller. Hello? I think they forget about us. <laughs> I, I tell you, my producer's like, you have a caller to get to it. And I'm like, okay, hello. I, I don't know. All right. We're going to continue on. Uh, caller 908, are you there? Caller 908. Hello? Caller 908? Hello? Hello? Ooh. Caller 908? Okay. I'm, I'm going to continue on, uh, Nicole. All right. Okay. So um, now I, I read that um, in 2001, Oklahoma State Legislature passed the Tulsa Race Riot Reconciliation Act. Yes, this was mm-hmm. um so so literally by the 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 nineties um, there was dispute over mm-hmm. whether the Tulsa race riot actually happened. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a professor at the University of Oklahoma at Tulsa in, in the history department who was teaching the Tulsa race riot, and the mm-hmm. students um, petitioned the university to make her stop because they said she was lying. Mm. So that's how divided people were about whether this happened or not or how mm-hmm. it happened or how many people died or if anyone died, mm-hmm. if anyone lost anything, et cetera, et right. cetera. Right. So the, um, the governor of Oklahoma at the time commissioned a, a nonpartisan, not even bipartisan, mm-hmm. a nonpartisan mm-hmm. committee to research the event and mm-hmm. to come up with um, primary resources to support their uh, whatever their final analysis, basically to create an official um, reporting of how we were going to remember what happened that right. day, if anything happened at all. And that mm-hmm. would be the official history that we mm-hmm. would stick to based on this mm-hmm. report. And so mm-hmm. these people took over a year of their lives and met in committees, and they were you know, co- collegiate and, and historians and et cetera. And they mm-hmm. were, uh, according to 60 Minutes, you know, lots and lots of bickering about what happened and didn't and what a viable resource was and, and what could be cited and what couldn't be cited and um, as they try to dig into what the truth was. Mm-hmm. And they finally issued their report after, like I said, a year to the governor. Mm-hmm. And in that report, they were also asked to make recommendations. And this, mm-hmm. let me double back a little bit. Um, Congressman John Conyers in Michigan 
also since like the 1980s, I don't even know if he's still in Congress anymore, but when he was first elected and for like decades after, would propose something called H.R. 57, 54, I might be making, it's 54 or 57, which essentially was a piece of legislation that would allow for a committee to be created to examine the effects of slavery on our society and to make recommendations Mm -hmm. as to what the legislature could do to remedy any, anything that they found. Right. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. that, that um, bill never even made it to committee. It never has even made it to discussion. And so it wasn't a bill for reparations. It was a bill Mm -hmm. for a committee. So in Oklahoma, Mm -hmm. you think, Oh, they're pretty progressive. The governor just went ahead and said, let's do a committee. Let's do it. But Mm -hmm. when the committee uh, launched their findings and said that they were for reparations, Mm-hmm. The governor was like, ah, no, we're going to give you all a statue, uh, a statue in Greenwood uh-huh. and some um, support for the Greenwood Cultural Center, which unfortunately I think expired in like 2010. Wow. Um, wow. And, and, and y'all better be happy. Yeah, I heard I heard scholarships, a few maybe a few scholarships yeah, for the uh, few scholarships. descendants. Whereas whereas the people in Rosewood actually the the people who were able to prove that mm-hmm. they lost property in mm-hmm. Rosewood were given like twenty thousand dollars a piece. Right. And and scholarships and a statue. Um Right. Now I was I I read that Rosewood is the only the descendants yeah. of Rosewood are the only only um, African Americans that ever got yep. reparations. Okay. Yep. I'm correct. Yep. That. Okay. And and what was what was so heartbreaking about about the the Tulsa Race Right Commission? Well, mm-hmm. the, it was good in that Johnny Cochran and Charles Ogletree, what mm-hmm. they were trying to do, um, in partnership, I think, with John Conyers, they, they were they realized that this issue was never going to be pushed to the legislature. No one was, just wasn't going to make it there. But they had mm-hmm. to attack the issue the same way that the civil rights attacked the issues, through the judiciary, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. So they can't claim anything for slavery because, at the very least, it's a statute of limitations. But you right. can't prove what you owned or didn't own and, and how much is the value of your life because you say, oh, you took my dignity. Like, how much is that worth? Because that's right. really what the scales of our justice system is about. It's about, it's about, you know, making, you know, recompense with restitution through Mm -hmm. actual material goods. It's not, they can't do much else for you. So they were like, fine, we're going to let slavery go because we, Mm -hmm. we can't make that argument in court. But what we can do is look at all of the instances across the country where black people have lost property because the, either the federal government or state government didn't provide the protection that they were supposed to or mm-hmm. or did it themselves. Mm-hmm. So um, they were going to launch a campaign across the nation to, okay. to take all of these cases to trial, just like they mm-hmm. did in Brown versus Board of Education, mm-hmm. and then use that mounted evidence to then take to the legislature and say, clearly this was a problem, something should be further should be done. Um, but they... So when the report came out and the mm-hmm. governor denied them the, the reparations, Johnny mm-hmm. Cochran and Ogletree went to work, and they started to gather all of the all the people who were victims of mm-hmm. the Tulsa race riot. And at the time, it was maybe a, a couple hundred at tops, mm-hmm. a couple mm-hmm. hundred tops. But as they were trying to work through the case, not only did Johnny Cochran die, but oh. but the people the people started to die because he got oh. a, you know they're in their eighties and nineties. Yeah. The people are starting to die. 
And mm-hmm. because of the way that they've structured this case, mm-hmm. the the um, the beneficiaries, the the generations after, mm-hmm. they they can't make a claim. You can't wow. say, "Oh, my family had a business that would have right. been mine had it not been destroyed." Right. You can't say that oh. in court. It's only the person who's been wronged who can who can bring up a case. Yeah. So as they started to die, and then Cochran died, and it lost mm-hmm. energy, and it was okay. the whole case was like thrown out. I think, like they got mm-hmm. nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Well. So. Well. They. Well. Okay. So they may not have got you know the actual reparations, but yeah. they did get acknowledgement. You know, they did get they a, did. and they got a memorial. They did. So they, they did. did. They did. And 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 I think kind of most. I won't say most importantly. Equally mm-hmm. as important, they got the story. I mean, history is a weapon. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the way that yeah. we tell the story of about who we are and about yeah. what happened shapes how we view ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, if if those stories are aren't told with everyone's perspectives in mind, then then we confuse our young people really because right. they're trying to figure out why they're having this experience. Mm-hmm. Because nothing about the history that we've taught them has has pointed to why, has pieced right. that together for them. Yes, yes. So like, I'm feeling this hatred, but I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, you got to know your history, right? That's so important. Yeah. So yeah. important. Okay, so... Well, let's give all your information so people can follow you on social media. They can, you know, look yes. you up. So, um, my you're... website, okay, my website mm-hmm. is um, www. dot com, and my name is spelled with two K's, so it's N I K K O L E S A L T E R. NicoleSalter. dot com. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there is Crossroads Theater Company, and that's yes. Crossroads Theater Company. dot org mm-hmm. um, where you can find out all about the show and get tickets and all that stuff great and um i'm on twitter i am on twitter okay. i think it's just at nicole salter i try to keep it simple <laughs> okay okay great facebook i don't tweet much i tweet am on it? facebook it's just okay. nicole salter like i have no fancy schmancy name it's just my name <laughs> okay okay great um great and on my Anything. website, you can find out mm-hmm. about all the other projects and listen to some audio from other um, interviews or from all the other plays. But you're my first great. interview for Repairing a Nation, so I'm excited and okay. I'm very thankful. Oh, okay, I appreciate great. you. Great. Well, you know what? I found it so interesting. And like I said, not only are you a, I read a dramatist, you're also an actress. I you am know, an actress. You're, yes. Um and you're graduate of what? By trade, that's what I got my degrees in. Actually. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, yeah. and you have a, a your bachelor's is at Howard, and your yes. master's is at uh, NYU graduate acting program. Correct? Yes, that is all correct. You did okay. your homework. <laughs> Absolutely, Nicole. It has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time, and I, I wish you. you. Yeah, I wish the, much success to your play. I, I think I have to run out there and get a ticket so I can, um, you know, view it myself because it sounds so You have to come to opening night, Ms. Gaines. You do. Okay. Okay, I will. I definitely will. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Thank you so much. You have a wonderful You're evening. You're welcome. Okay. You too. Good bye, night. Bye, all right. Good night. Bye-bye. This is Shelly. Bye-bye.
This is Shelley Gaines, your host for this edition of The Gift of Freedom. Have a wonderful evening. <music>